also in me. My Father's house has many rooms. If that were not so, would I have told you that I'm going there to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come back and take you to be with me, that you also may be where I am. You know the way to the place where I am going. Thomas said to him, Lord, we don't know where you're going, so how can we know the way? Jesus answered, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If you really know me, you will know my Father as well. From now on, you do know him and have seen him. Philip said, Lord, show us the Father. That will be enough for us. Jesus answered, don't you know me, Philip, even after I've been among you for such a long time? Anyone who has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? Don't you believe that I am in the Father and the Father is in me? The words I say to you, I do not speak on my own authority. Rather, it is the Father living in me who is doing his work. Believe me when I say that I am in the Father and the Father is in me, or at least believe on the evidence of the works themselves. Very truly, I tell you, whoever believes in me will do the works I have been doing, and they will do even greater things than these because I am going to the Father. And I will do whatever you ask in my name, so that the Father may be glorified in the Son. You may ask me for anything in my name, and I will do it. The word of the Lord. Let's pray together. Lord God, thank you for your word, and thank you that we can gather this morning. Thank you for the privilege of being your church, here, gathered, and scattered across the world. We ask you to be with us this morning, powerfully present and at work. Speak to us in mind and heart. Come, Holy Spirit, in the name of Jesus. Amen. You may be seated. So I've noticed something as we've been having our dinner with Jesus. He seems to like to say things that don't really make any sense. We saw this last week. He's told them he's going to die, and then he says, now is the time for glory. And you're like, wait, what? I thought you just said you're going to get arrested and crucified. That doesn't make any sense. And we talked about that last week. He starts off with the same kind of thing here. He says, do not let your hearts be troubled. Now, hold on a minute. Think about what's going on here. They've gathered together for the Passover feast, and Jesus kicks things off by washing their feet, which is kind of disturbing and very challenging, tells them he's going to die, and not only is he going to die, but one of the closest of his companions, one of the 12 people he is sharing a meal with, one of the people he's just washed their feet is going to betray him, and that is how he's going to go. And so the disciples are sitting down at this dinner and they're trying to digest the fact that Jesus has told them he's going to die and he's going to do so by the hand of one of their closest friends. And, and he hasn't even let them like start to, to take that in yet when he turns and he's like, oh, and by the way, Peter, the rock, the strongest among you, he will deny me three times before the rooster crows tomorrow morning. That's how bad this is going to get my friends. We're sitting here right now, but before the sun rises, I will be betrayed to death, and you will all run away. And then he says, right after that, don't let your hearts be troubled. What are they supposed to do? 
Like, how can he say that? But it, it is his word to his disciples in that very troubling situation. And I very strongly believe it is his word for us this morning. If I was going to change anything about my sermon, I would have changed the title, and I just didn't do it soon enough, to do not let your hearts be troubled. How can he say this? I mean, he's the one who's about to die. If anybody should be being comforted, it's him, right? Not, not him offering the comfort to the people around him. And to be clear, he is not offering false comfort. He's not about to say to them, do not let your hearts be troubled. It's not going to be that bad. He's the one who's told them how bad it's going to be. They wouldn't know if he hadn't said it, right? Like there wasn't some other way that they found out that he was going to die and he was going to be betrayed and they were all going to run away and they were going to deny Jesus. He told them that. He's told them how bad it's going to be. And then do not let your hearts be troubled. So it's not about... You know, it's not really what you think it is. It's not as bad as you might fear. Don't worry, et cetera, et cetera. It's not that. It's something else. And we're going to walk through that something else this morning because there are three reasons in the passage we just read that Jesus can say, do not let your hearts be troubled. And as applicable as they were to the disciples 2,000 years ago, they are just as applicable and just as true today. No matter what we face, we happen to be facing a troubling time. But whether or not, you know, you're thinking about this today or these things come back to you years from now in some other kind of trouble, they will still be true. So three things, that we, the reasons that we do not have to be troubled. The first reason that Jesus can say to them and say to us, do not let your hearts be troubled, is because our future is assured. That's the first thing he says. Don't let your hearts be troubled. Trust me, trust God. We are preparing a place for you. The end of the story is written. And the end of the story is good. He has promised us to use the literal translation that we usually translate rooms because that's what it means. He has promised us abiding places with God. For all eternity, we get to be with him. And that's not, contrary to Hallmark cards and things like this, the promise of having wings and a white robe and a halo and a harp and sitting on a cloud for all of eternity. And, and that's supposed to be something we really look forward to. That sounds awfully boring. But that is not the biblical picture of what we have to look forward to, okay? The biblical picture of what we have to look forward to is everything good you've ever experienced in this life and so much better than that, you can't even imagine it. When the scriptures try to give us pictures of what the promised eternal life will look like, they take all of the most amazing things you can think of, things like precious materials, gold, pearls, and then they make them absurd. The streets will be paved with gold. The, the gate pillars will be carved from a single pearl. You know how big that pearl would have to be? Like, not because they're trying to be literal, but they're trying to say the glory you have experienced in this world, the things you look at as the best treasures, the most precious, what God has for you is so far beyond that, you can't even imagine it. So I love the way C.S. Lewis ends the Chronicles of Narnia, that the children uh, are entering into the kingdom of God. Um, they've died 
and they and they they meet Aslan, and that's the Jesus figure, and the they they head off into this amazing world with it's like mountain upon mountain and waterfalls and it's beautiful and the kind of epilogue C.S. Lewis says and all of the adventures that they had experienced in this life and all of the adventures they had experienced in the land of Narnia were like the first page of a book that goes on chapter after chapter each one better than the last that's what Jesus means when he says, I'm going to prepare an abiding place for you. God is a God of infinite creativity. God is a God of adventure. God is a God of good gifts. God is a God of joy and of peace and of life to the full. And that is assured. And so whatever happens in this life, we don't have to wonder about what comes next. And there's a great deal of peace that comes from that truth. It allows us to face whatever this life throws at us with hope because whatever this life throws at us does not in any way diminish or dim or threaten the hope that we have in Jesus Christ. I'm trying. <laughs> and so he makes this promise. If I'm going to prepare a place, I'm coming back for you. And this, of course, is where he says something that doesn't make any sense again. I'm going, I'm coming back, and you know the way. Now, there's two immediate questions you can ask here, and I love that Thomas, I, I identify so much with Thomas and Philip as I read the Gospel of John, because on the one hand, and he doesn't ask this question, you could say, if you're coming back for me, I don't need to know the way. You're going to come back for me. You're going to show me the way. But then the other question is, if we don't know where you're going, and you just finished telling us that we can't follow you and that we're going to look for you and not find you, then how can we know the way? Like, what you, what you are saying continues to not make much sense, Jesus. <laughs> and so Jesus answers. You do know, he doesn't say this, I'm paraphrasing, but he's saying, you do know the way because I am the way. This is what Jesus says. I am the way and the truth and the life. And I want to sit on that phrase for a minute because one of the things we do with Jesus' I am statements, I am the light of the world, I am the bread of life, I, et cetera, et cetera, is they become slogans. They become familiar phrases that we're used to hearing and that we don't really think about very much. Of course, Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. They're kind of like titles. It's like when we say Jesus Christ as if that was a name. It's not. It's a title. Jesus the Christ is probably a better way to say it, to remind ourselves that Christos, or Messiah, is a title. When he says, I am the way, he's communicating something very specific. I have just promised you that you will have an abiding place in the house of my Father. And if you want to get there, you get there by being with me, by knowing me. Jesus is the way. It's not, the, it's not a kind of journey where what you need are directions. It's the kind of journey where what you need is a relationship. Because knowing and being with Jesus is knowing and being with the Father. That's exactly what he goes on to say. No one comes to the Father except through me. If you really knew me, you would know my Father as well. And from now on, you do know him and have seen him. And then Philip again asks, asks the obvious question. And he's a good Jew. Like, show us the Father. This is, of course, let us see God. It's the cry of every devout follower. Let us see you. This is what Moses wanted. Right? He doesn't quite get it. 
just the, the inklings, the backside, the, the fading presence of God's glory. Show us the Father. And Jesus says, you don't get it. You've seen the Father because you've seen me. And this is the second reason that Jesus can say, do not let your hearts be troubled. Because in an uncertain world that changes every day, there is one who you can be certain of, and that is Jesus. He is the way, the truth, and the life, and he is with us today, and nothing that happens in our world will change that either. And so just as our future is assured, so is the present companionship of Jesus, his faithfulness, and his goodness, and his power. None of these things challenges that. He is still the way, the truth, and the life. One of the things that's really troubling about the uncertainty and mess of the world, and this is, again, true regardless of what you're going through, right? It feels especially true today, but it's not just true today. One of the things that's really troubling in all of this is that what you don't always know what to do. It's, it's like the world is falling apart and you're kind of like, ah! But Jesus is still the way. And yes, you need wisdom. And yes, you're going to face hard decisions. And yes, the uncertainty is real. But in the midst of all of it, priority number one will never change. It will always be, be with Jesus. He is the way and the truth and the life. And we can talk through each of those, not just the way. He is the way to the Father. He is the truth of who the Father is. And He is the life that God wants for all of us. And you can pursue His way and walk in knowledge of His truth and experience His life no matter what the external circumstances in your life are. Jesse got up and shared about this family in Mexico and the joy they experienced despite their living circumstances and the conditions that they faced. Because the joy of the Lord does not depend on the amount of money in our bank account or on our health or on our success in our career or et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. It doesn't depend on those things. It is rooted and established and founded in the person of God who never changes. And so you do not have to let your hearts be troubled. Our future is assured. The present person, faithfulness, power, greatness, and presence of God is assured. And thirdly, our calling never changes either. Our future, the presence of God, and our calling do not change. And because of that, we can face each thing in the world, and hear Jesus' words, do not let your hearts be troubled. How do I get to calling? As we get to the end of this passage, we hit some incredibly powerful promises of Jesus that are often pulled out of context and therefore often misunderstood. He says two amazing things. He says, very truly I tell you, whoever believes in me will do the works I have been doing, and they will do even greater things than these. Now stop and think about that for a minute. Jesus did some pretty awesome stuff. And the Gospel of John has not been shy of showing us how amazing Jesus is. And now Jesus says, if you believe in me, you'll do greater than that? What does that mean? And he doesn't, that would be enough, okay? But he doesn't stop there. He goes on, he says, I'll do whatever you ask in my name. 
Now that sounds too good to be true. And you know what what's, we say about things that seem too good to be true, right? They probably are. So what is he talking about? Well, he's actually saying some very specific things once you take them in context. And we're going to take them as Jesus gives them. So the first thing he tells us in terms of these amazing promises is that whoever believes in him will do the works he's been doing and will do even greater things than these. Now, if you've heard this preached on before and taught before, you've probably heard one of three answers to how we can interpret this. One, we get to preach the gospel, and we get to preach the gospel all over the world, and that is amazing. And the fact that the gospel is spreading beyond the bounds of Jerusalem and Judea, which it didn't do in the lifetime of Jesus, is the greater work. The second possible explanation here is that there have been more Christians in more places over a much longer period of time since Jesus lived and walked on the earth, and therefore, taken together, the works of the church, those who believe in Jesus, are greater than the works that Jesus did, because they're more numerous, because they've spread out over the world and over history. And the third answer you might have heard is that this is this is, a, this is a real promise that we could all live into if we can just get it right, whatever it is, depending on who the preacher you're hearing, right? If we just prayed and fasted enough, if we just believed hard enough, if we, you know, pick your answer. Now, I'm going to talk about some of those, but all three of these answers suffer from a serious problem, which is that they lack context, the word greater is always framed by something. Greater is, is, is literally an empty word without framework. If I just look out at this room and I say, who's greater? There is no way to answer this. It's a nonsensical sentence. Who's greater in what way, right? And even when you frame the word, it gets difficult. So let's take a really easy example. Hockey players. Hockey is a well-defined game with clear ends. Who is the greatest hockey player? If you're a hockey fan in here, you could probably get into an argument about that. Because even in a really well-defined game like hockey, some people are going to think it was Gordie Howe, and other people are going to think it was Rain Gretzky, and other people want to hit me because those are the only two names I'm going to mention. And you have someone else that you think was the greatest hockey player who ever lived. And when you step away from a really well-defined game like hockey, and then you try to talk about who's greater, oh, good luck. Right? That's a debate you can have in any context. Greatest vehicle, greatest politician. Um, like, what are you gonna, like, how do you do this? Right? Unless you've defined what greater means, you cannot answer the question. And therefore, you can't understand what Jesus is saying. You, you can't know what he means when he says, we'll do even greater things than these, unless you know what he means by greater. Thankfully, the Gospel of John makes it pretty clear that's the context, right? That's when this is being said. The gospel of, in the Gospel of John, we get to see the works of Jesus. And the Gospel of John is organized around seven signs or seven works of Jesus, beginning with turning water into wine at the wedding and ending with the resurrection of Jesus after his crucifixion and burial. And along the way, John gives us a total of seven works or signs. And each time, he is very clear about what is great about these signs. And the same thing is true, by the way, of the words 
of Jesus in the Gospel of John. And we sometimes pull the words and works apart. Jesus hasn't done that. Even in this passage, he says, believe what I'm saying, but if you don't believe what I'm saying, then believe on the evidence of what I've done. Believe on the evidence of the works. And so the Gospel of John is very, very careful, and it actually pretty much alternates, though it's not quite precise, to alternate between works of Jesus and encounters with Jesus that are all about words, right? And we've walked through those in the last, you know, month and a half, two months. And we, we haven't been doing the works of Jesus, we've been doing encounters with Jesus with focus, which focus on the words. So you go back to that first one, you go back to the first sign, Jesus turns water into wine. And at the end of that miracle, at the end of that amazing work, John summarizes it and he says, in the, this was the first of Jesus' signs, and in this way, he revealed his glory, and his disciples put their faith in him. Every sign and every encounter leads to those two conclusions. He's revealing the glory of God, and he is deepening the faith of his disciples. And he does this through a miracle like turning water into wine, where hardly anyone even knows that he's done it, to raising Lazarus from the dead, where the whole Jewish world seems to get news that he's done this. Right? One which might be a party trick, and the other one which is absolutely incredible. He does this meeting Nicodemus at night and talking to a Pharisee about how he doesn't know how to read the Bible. He also does this when they bring, and that's a very private, one-on-one, -on -one, no one ever hears about that conversation except the disciples that Jesus told, it about, told about it. And then he does it with the woman caught in adultery, this massively public event in the temple, where in one sentence, in the whole encounter, he says two things, one to the crowd and one to the woman. In one sentence, he says, let he who is without sin cast the first stone. And he accomplishes these same two ends. He gives glory to God, and he deepens the faith of his disciples. The greatness of Jesus' works was not dependent upon how spectacular, public, unheard of, amazing, or fantastic, or miraculous they were. Many of them were those things, don't get me wrong. Lots of his signs were, fit all of those descriptions. You don't feed the 5,000 without being spectacular. But that isn't what made them great. What made them great is they revealed who God is and therefore gave opportunity for anyone who understood to put their faith in him. That's it. That is the greatness of what Jesus did. And so he says, I tell you the truth, anyone who has faith in me will do what I have been doing, give glory to God, give opportunity for people to put their faith in him. And he will do even greater things than these because, and this is another one where we like to skip this, because I am going to the Father. Now, in the normal ways of talking about the greatness of what Jesus has done and how we can do greater things, it's really hard to tell why Jesus going to the Father changes this at all. If the issue is just preaching the gospel, or if the issue is getting it right, 
or if the issue is that we can do this lots over time, then what did, why, did, why does Jesus have to go to the Father to make this possible? It doesn't make any sense. But it does make sense when we understand the context and framework of greatness. Give glory to God and give people the opportunity to deepen their faith in Him. Every single sign Jesus does and every single encounter He has along the way is pointing forward to something that has not yet happened. And repeatedly we find in the Gospel of John, Jesus saying to his disciples, I'm telling you this so that when it happens, you'll get it. I'm telling you this because I have to prepare you so that you'll understand. Right now you won't understand, right? He talks to the woman at the well. He says, anyone who comes to me will receive water and they'll never thirst again. But it hasn't happened yet. Because every single sign he performs, every single work he's done, and every single encounter he has points forward to the cross and the resurrection. And until he has actually died on the cross and been raised from the dead and gone to be with his father, he is pointing to something that nobody can yet fully understand. It's not possible because the work hasn't been done. This is why in the Gospel of John, Jesus' only words from the cross are, it is finished. Because the whole thing has been pointing to that. I wish there was a cross in here I could point at. To that cross, imagine it. We will do greater works because we don't have to point forward to an event that has yet to be accomplished and that no one can understand yet. We get to point back to the finished work of Jesus on the cross, to something that we can experience in fullness today. We're not waiting for the gift of the Holy Spirit. This whole rest of this dialogue, Jesus is going to talk to them. He's going to say, after I've left, I'm going to send the Holy Spirit to you. And he will give glory to God and deepen your faith. He will do these things, and you will get to preach to other people, and you will get to anoint them, and they will receive the Holy Spirit too, right? He's always pointing ahead, and we don't have to. If you're here this morning and you're not a believer, you can join Jesus' people today and receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. And we can talk to you about the finished work of Jesus on the cross and how that revealed the glory of God. And if you were here last week, I talked about glory, but I'll do it briefly right now. The glory of a thing is its truth, its, its deepest reality, its goodness held forth for all to see. And no moment in Scripture holds forth the glory of God more than Jesus dying on the cross and rising from the dead, suffering for our sin and defeating death and evil and darkness on our behalf, because that's who God is. So, do we do greater work because we get to preach the gospel around the whole world? Yes, we absolutely do. Do we do greater work because it is spread out through time and history and space? Yes, this is absolutely true. And do we do greater work if we get it right? Yes, if by it we mean giving glory to God in everything we do and providing people the opportunity to deepen their faith in Jesus at every turn. Then yes, if we get that right, we will do greater works than Jesus. And some of them will be miraculous and amazing, just like some of Jesus were. And some of them will be one sentence spoken to a woman caught in adultery 
or ashamed or in some other way needing freedom from a single word of encouragement. And the greatness of either of those things is not about how public they are or how spectacular they are or anything else except that they give glory to God and give opportunity for faith. That's our purpose. Now, I know you may have forgotten where we were in the sermon before. Do not let your hearts be troubled. The future is assured. God is with us, and our calling remains the same. And no matter what situation in life you face, you can ask the question, can I give glory to God in this? And the answer will be yes. The more important question is, how? How can I give glory to God in this? And I want to talk a little bit about the early church. The church is born in Acts chapter 2 with the coming of the Holy Spirit and thousands giving their faith to Jesus, in putting their faith in Jesus. And then the church exists for about 300 years as a persecuted minority. They, are, they, they range in terms of cultural response from looked down upon disdainfully to, you know, that was the best it got, to openly persecuted and thrown to the lions, right? That was the, the spectrum. That was as, as far as you could go. And yet, within about 300 years, the church had grown to be the largest group in the Roman Empire and became the official religion of the Roman Empire, and one of the questions that historians have asked is, how in the world did that happen? How do you go from, you know, 5,000 people in Jerusalem, which is a backwater in the Roman Empire, and leveled 20 years or 30 years later, like literally the Romans level that city, how do you go, and, and in the meantime they experienced famine and war, and how do you go from that to being the church? of that entire world, the world of the Roman Empire, not, not the whole world of that day. And um, a number of authors have looked at this, and one of, them, one of my favorite is Rodney Stark, and he, he's a sociologist, and, um, and he did this big study about the growth of the early church, and he came to this conclusion, and, and he's a believer, and, and so he doesn't, he's not trying to discount the acts of God and, and miracles and all of these kind of things. And we often think about growth in the church, and we look for revival, we look for the spirit to fall and mass conversions and miracles all over town. And man, I would love to live through a revival and I would love to see that. And historically, there have been and they are awesome times in the life of the church. Um, but you know what the biggest periods of growth for the early church were in those 300 years? Three times plague swept through the Roman Empire, killing between 25 and 45% of the population. In the time of plague, the first people out of the city were the rich and the doctors, because the doctors were usually rich. <laughs> and there was no like medical system like there is now, so they're going to take care of themselves. There are writings about, you know, like during the plague, nobody has family. Not because you don't have any blood relatives anymore, but because if you get sick, they're out of there. Like, we're gone, sorry. Because um, it was so severe and so deadly and just so awful that to stick around when somebody got sick, that's risking your life. And not just a little bit. Like, we're not talking about, like, you know, 3% mortality rates. We're talking much higher than that. So you run. You know who didn't run? The church. 
The church in those days, and still today, believed in what were called the seven corporeal acts of mercy. It's taken from Jesus' parable of the sheep and the goats, where he says, whatever you've done for these, you've done for me. And we take that very seriously. So what are these seven acts? I I hope I can remember them all. You feed the hungry, you clothe the naked, you give drink to the thirsty, you provide for and shelter the poor, you you care for the sick, you visit the prisoners, and you bury the dead. Those are the seven corporeal acts of mercy. And so when the plague came through, they said, okay, we're surrounded by sick Jesuses, it's time to get to work. And they did, and, and died for it. Don't get me wrong. Risked their lives, risked life and limb to care for the people with the plague. Um, but when you care for somebody who's very, very sick, you significantly increase their chances of survival. You also, by showing them the love of Jesus, quite literally because you are risking your life to save someone else's life, show them the truth of the gospel message. And so if the death rate was going to be 40%, and because Christians are caring for people, it gets cut down to 20%, that's an amazing witness to those people who survived and all of their family and friends who one day come back into town to hear the story of what the church had done for them. The church formed burial squads, made up of mostly single young men who had the strength to do the work and were not risking their families when they came home, to go through town, collect the dead, and bury them, which is probably one of the riskiest things that they could do. But in that culture, as in many today, it was an incredibly shameful thing to do, to be left out to rot. It showed a deep amount of love and care and honor to be willing to do that for people. And each time plagues swept through the Roman Empire, the church grew. Now, I'm not saying we hope for these days, and I'm not saying we are anywhere in those kinds of days now either. We do not live in that world. We do have um, much more advanced medical systems, and the, you know what's going on right now is nothing like the plagues that swept through the Roman Empire or medieval Europe. We're not talking about the Black Death or anything like that, okay? So I'm not trying to scare you when I tell you that story. But it is an amazing illustration of a time in the life of the church when they knew exactly what they were called to and responded in the way, the truth, and the life of Jesus. I have no idea how things are going to go in Canada as we face this pandemic. I don't know if we're going to go like Italy, which if you've been reading, it's not pretty or if it's going to be more like other places where it doesn't spread too much or hasn't yet. But I do know that our mission stays the same, and this is an incredible time of opportunity for us to show the love of Jesus, knowing that our future is assured, knowing that whatever we do to give God glory, he will be with us as we do it, and knowing that the core of our mission is to give glory to God and give people opportunity to put their faith in Him. And so I do want to urge and encourage you to begin now to think about how you can show the love of God in this situation as it is and if it gets worse. To begin praying about that now, and seriously so, because it's not necessarily an easy thing. And I can't say every one of us should be doing this thing. You know what? I think it's going to look different for each of us. Part of what we're going to do, of course, is to submit to and obey our governing authorities, as Kathleen said. Um, But we can certainly do more than that. We can be generous while people around us hoard. We can be calm while people around us panic. 
we can look for ways to help. I want to say specifically from the stories around the world where the stress and strain is really felt is on the healthcare sector. So if you know people who work in that world, get ready to back them up. Find a way because you love Jesus and want to show who he is to whoever you can. And as you do that, do not let your hearts be troubled. Trust in God and trust in Jesus. Let's pray. Lord God, thank you. Thank you for our assured and promised future. Thank you for our hope. Teach us what it means to live with hope no matter what's going on. Thank you for your presence with us. Teach us what it means to walk in your way and to know your truth and to experience and share your life. And thank you for your call to give you glory and to give people opportunity to trust in you. We ask for opportunities to do just that, the wisdom to see them and the courage to take them. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen.